in the book of Zechariah, lesson number 10. Uh, this will conclude Zechariah for us. We've covered the last few chapters a little bit quicker. A lot of it is somewhat repetitive. You see kind of the same theme that's being mentioned two and three times, so it's a little bit easier to condense. But now, I will warn you, as you go back and you read these last seven chapters or so, there's a lot of prophecies in there. There's a lot of very fine things in there, and it's worth the the extra time to go back and to read and to really meditate upon and to just chew on it and look at it because there's some beautiful things in it. There's some prophecies that we won't touch a whole lot on tonight, but prophecies about Messiah. Uh, it's in these last, well, in this, uh, what we're going to study tonight, we see a prophecy of Jesus standing there and they ask him uh, where he received these wounds. And he said, I got these wounds in the house of my friends. Uh, we also have the prophecy when Jesus was uh, in the garden of Gethsemane and he uh, was but uh, all the disciples fled away, and you know he said that this is done that it might be fulfilled. What Zechariah said that smite the shepherd and the sheep will flee, and uh, you know so we see a lot of those little things, a lot of other little things that we see that's inside this. And really, I didn't realize it until I got to study in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is a great help to the book of Revelation. So when you start getting into those last chapters of Revelation, and you start seeing that. You see a lot of those same pictures here in the book of Zechariah. We see the Christ coming back, said, uh, standing on the Mount of Olives, the mountain splitting, the nation of Israel running to the valley in between. Uh, just a lot of those beautiful pictures, a lot of that symbolism that's used there. So uh, I, I do just suggest that at some point in time, go back, reread it, look at it, and, and just meditate upon it. Of course, all the Word is worth doing that. It's amazing to me when we meditate upon the Word of God, when we read upon different things how beautiful it is, how perfectly it fits together. I, I'll get, I'm, I tend to get myself in trouble, and I'm always worried that I'm going to say something that's going to really be offensive, but at the same time, I don't want to feel that way because if it offends and it's the truth, then it's not me offending, it's the word offending. But as I've read through this, I'm thinking, well, the book of Zechariah is in the Old Testament. This is primarily, well, it's the book that the Jewish people use. And as I'm reading through it, and I see these pictures of Jesus Christ so vividly throughout the pages of Zechariah, it makes me question how do the Jewish people, or people who still practice Judaism and reject Jesus Christ, how do they read through this? How do they interpret that? What do they look at? And how are they able to justify not seeing Christ. And I realize that, you know, spiritual truth and spiritual understanding only comes from the presence of God. That it's only revealed to us through his divine nature that we can't understand spiritual truth apart from the presence of God. That's what Jesus told Peter in, I think it was Matthew 16, Matthew 14, where was it? Or not Matthew, but Mark, where uh, Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus turned to him and said, you know, you're right, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Spirit of God. You know, it takes that power of God, the presence of God, to reveal spiritual truth. But at the same time, as I'm reading through it, to me it just seems so obvious what it's talking about and who it's talking about. And how, as a Jewish person, they can reject Jesus Christ after seeing all of this. It's amazing to me. And then when we get to the end of the chapter, we see that there's going to be a great mourning that takes place, a, a, a weeping, a lamentation that's going to take place when the nation of Israel's eyes are opening. And I have to wonder if a lot of that is not because they look at it and they say, how many of our people have perished? 
How many of our people are suffering an eternal separation from God, tormented in hell, bound for the lake of fire, because they've rejected Jesus Christ as Savior as plainly as it's written there? And I was just, as I was reading through it and studying, that was one of the things that I just noticed. So, like I said, as we get to this uh, portion of the scripture, we see a glimpse into the end-time prophecies, the Gentile nations attacking the nation of Israel. Back several years ago, maybe it was a little bit harder to see how these things could be fulfilled. But today, all you have to do is turn on the news, turn on Fox, turn on CNN, turn on any local news network, and you start to see the players of the Middle East and the way things are going over there. And it seems to be very obvious that this is where we're heading to. And this is all going to come to a climax and come to an end. But uh, it's just uh, some, you know, so the word that studying here is well worth it. It's a time that we see in this of the time of Jacob's trouble or the uh, the tribulation period, the Jews experiencing that, uh, Jesus coming back with great power and authority to reign and rule in his second coming, uh, the second oracle uh, of uh, Zechariah that we're going to look at tonight, uh, you know, one of the themes that we see in it is in that day or the day of the Lord, which is used oftentimes in this. In fact, it's found 16 times in these three chapters. The nation or the uh, city Jerusalem is mentioned 52 times throughout the book, and 22 of those are found in these last three chapters. So that kind of tells us how much of this prophecy is focusing just on that particular area in that region during that day and time. So as we look at uh, as we look at it, we see that Jesus loved Israel with that everlasting love. We kind of saw that last week, uh, how he mentioned that he had that jealous love for them. And we need to remember and understand that everything that has happened up to this point is to bring Israel back into that proper relationship with God. That God desires for them to be his people to be his uh, uh, object of his affection here on earth now that's not exclusive and we'll talk about that here in just a few minutes that god wants all nations all people to come to that relationship but he chose the nation of israel as his people to reveal him to the world and he still desires his people in that relationship today so just a lot of great things that we're going to see so uh, as we get into chapter 12 one of the first things that we'll notice in uh, the first couple of verses is that the author of this, or Zechariah, he goes back to the, well, who's in charge of everything. That God is the one that made everything. It says, the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretched forth the heavens and left the foundation of the earth and formed the spirits of man within him. You know, so we see right away that as he's opening this up, he's giving God sovereign reign over every imaginable realm. That we see him as God over the heavens. That as far as we can look into the night sky, and uh, no matter what we see up there and how far we will ever be able to see with modern technology, with telescopes or whatever it may be, that God is the one that fashioned that. God is the one that created that, put that into being. Out of nothing created he everything. And, and God was the one that did that. He's still in control of that. But yet also the foundation of the earth. You know, No matter how high we look or how deep, in the earth that we look, we still see the thumbprint of God on that. That the heavens declare his handiwork. That the earth shows uh, what God is and who God is. But not only that, it also transcends over into the spiritual realm. Now we know as Christians that we live in a physical realm, but there's a spiritual world about us. Amen? 
We know that there is a spiritual world that exists that sometimes is beyond our vision, beyond our comprehension even, to where we can't even, we can't see it, we can't feel it, we can't taste it, but yet we know that it's there. We we know that angels exist, we know that Satan exists, that there's demonic powers that uh, fell from, that was cast out of heaven. I don't want to say fell from heaven, they fell with Lucifer, Uh, they were cast out. Uh, but they are still real. They are they are a real uh, thing, you know. So there's a spiritual realm here, and as you see in the first verse here, that God is the God of that spiritual realm as well. So right away we see that everything is under His power and authority. And as you're getting ready to read into this, and we see that uh, there's starting to be some prophecies about some destruction, some tribulation, some problems. Isn't it good to know going into that? That God is God of all, that God is in control, that there's nothing that's going to happen beyond this point that's going to catch him off guard. And I think sometimes in our own life, it would be good for us to start off our day by acknowledging and understand that no matter what happens, if problems come from above or beneath or if they're spiritual in nature, that God is still sovereign over all of that, that he is still in charge, and that there's nothing that's going to be done that God cannot take care of or God cannot handle. Now, he may choose to allow us to go through things. In fact, uh, the nation of Israel, uh, he is going to allow these things to happen to them. He allowed the time of the exile to happen. He, uh, He allowed the Grecian Empire to come in, the Roman Empire. He allowed all these things to happen, but yet... All of this was for the benefit of the nation of Israel. And I do believe that when we go through trials and tribulations, if we will allow it, it can work that peaceable fruit of righteousness, which Hebrews chapter 12 talks about in our own lives, that we can be partakers of the holiness of Christ. You know, it's a very sad thing when we go through trials or tribulation and we don't get anything out of it. I know that I've personally been there. I have went through trials that have been part of my own doing and problem, but yet at the end of it, I didn't take the lesson out of it that I should have taken out of it. And guess what? Back through the wilderness again. Let's walk around the desert one more time, and we go back through. But yet uh, we should be uh, should understand that God is in charge of this. So as we go on and read, uh, we'll notice that he starts talking about all the nations are going to come against the people of Israel. You know, the phrase that it uses here is all people. It doesn't necessarily mean that everybody on the, in the world is going to be against Israel, but it does mean that by majority during that time of tribulation that the most of the people of the earth or all the nations are going to be against Israel, which again is somewhat of an odd thing. Why pick on Israel? Why is Israel so important in the large scheme of things to, to take the attention of all nations on them? Uh, really, it's been that way since... Their inception, it's, it's just something amazing to me that people will, will focus on the nation of Israel. You know, Hitler, uh, even going back into the time of the Romans or uh, even back further than that. Why focus on the nation of Israel? And then you have to ask the question, you know, what is it about Israel that makes Satan hate them so much? Is it because God loves the nation of Israel more than he does anybody else? Well, that's not it, because we know from the word of God, Romans, or Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Romans chapter 2, verse 11, that God is not respecter of persons. So he loves us with the same amount of love that he loves the nation of Israel. But I believe a lot of it is because of the fallacy of Satan's mindset, that Satan doesn't perceive 
things in the same way that God does. That he doesn't see prophecy in the same manner that God does. You know, we talk about how smart Satan is sometimes. And don't get me wrong, I believe that he is very wise and he has a way of tripping us up. I'm not trying to say he's an idiot by any means. You know, I wouldn't want to do that. There's so much destruction in this world today because of his craftiness because of his subtleness but yet at the same time there's things that he doesn't see I, I really believe that he feels that if he can destroy Israel then he puts an end to the end prophecies that he he puts an end to uh, God's second coming because without these prophecies being fulfilled then God still has to delay his coming which in turn will delay the amount of time that Satan has before he is cast into hell into the lake of fire Remember, hell and the lake of fire is not a place of, it's not a kingdom that Satan reigns. I read a book one time by uh, Karen Baxter, I think was her name. It was called A Divine Revelation of Hell. And I read the book, even though I didn't agree with most of what was written in it. Uh, it kind of set up hell as this kingdom. And Satan sat on the throne, and uh, Satan and his angels were the ones ministering the torment on human beings. But the simple fact is, hell was designed as a place for torment for Satan and his angels. And they are going to be in a place of torment. It's not a place for him to rule. And I think that he's trying to avoid that. But the fallacy of his thinking is the same thing that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, when it says, it's talking about Jesus being crucified. It says, but we speak the wisdom of God in mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. Now, what does that mean? Well, one of the greatest blunders of Satan was to crucify Christ. What happened when Christ was crucified? Prophecies were fulfilled. Bondages were broken. Sin was paid for on the cross at Calvary. By crucifying Christ, Satan expedited his own demise and own destruction. But yet, the Bible tells us that if the princes of this world had known, they would have not have done it. And, and I believe that the same is true for the nation of Israel and the powers of Satan now. That if they had known or if they knew what it was really doing, that by the destruction or by the the attempted destruction of Israel, all they are doing is ushering in the prophecies which God has already spoken is going to happen. But yet they are blinded just like the uh, Jewish people were blinded to the person of Jesus Christ. And just like we are blinded sometimes to righteousness when we want to, uh, you know, when we still want to live in the flesh. So anyway, any questions or comments on that? I'm, I'm sure that it's that's part of it with Messiah, but it still doesn't answer why he's intent on destroying them because destroying them now doesn't take away the Messiah because the Messiah has already come. And, but yet it still seems that he's bent on the destruction of the nation of Israel. And I understand what you're saying. I think that, yes, he hates them for that. But at the same time, I, I feel, and I'm not, this is not biblical. This is John theology. So take it for what it's worth. I'm not trying to say this is absolutely, and I can find you a scripture that says this is how Satan feels. But I just feel that there's probably that there that kind of in the same way as what I read there in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, that, that he just doesn't know what he's ushering in by that. And anyway, anyone else? But it just, I mean, logically it doesn't make sense, no matter what it is, whether it's the hate for Christ or whether it's what I said. Logically speaking, it doesn't make sense to focus on the nation of Israel. If I knew that by destroying a group of people meant my ultimate demise 
why wouldn't I just allow that people to be alone? Just send them over to their side. I'll focus over here on this one. It calls the destruction over here and leave that group of people. I mean, logically, it doesn't make sense, but yet, I mean, I, I understand what you're all saying, and I can agree with that too, but it's, um, it's just kind of an odd thing to think of, why Satan would continue to do that, because ultimately all these things are going to uh, bring in those end-time prophecies and put an end to Satan's reign here on earth. Anyone else? Same way. I think that they are just so blinded, and they and, and just to be blunt about it, I think a lot of our leaders in the world today, not just in America, but yes, in America as well, have a spirit of antichrist on them. That's why they are so bent on taking God out of, or taking Christ more specifically, out of any type of communication that we have. That it's all right to serve a God, just as long as we don't give that God the name Jesus Christ. But once we put that name Christ onto that, then all of a sudden, then they have a problem with this. I mean, the government doesn't have a problem with Islam. It doesn't have a problem with Buddhism. I mean, look, I'm, I'm going to get political here for a minute. I mean, but it's just, it's the nature of the way it is. Look at the amount of leadway we will give Islam that we will not afford to Christian citizens. Uh, if you're if you're a ex-military Christian Southern man, uh, you're considered a threat. But yet, if you uh, wear a hijab or uh, you, you know you can go into the airports and they won't even bother you. I mean, it's just it's a very double standard that they have, and I think it's large part because of a antichrist spirit that already exists in the world. In fact, the Antichrist spirit existed during the time of Christ. I mean, as we read through the epistles and we read through the different letters of the New Testament, there's several mentions of the Antichrist spirit that already existed even at that damn time. But I, I think a, lot, a large part of our government is, still has that. I mean, they want to stamp that out. Uh, for instance, do you know? does anybody in here know what is written on the top of the Washington Monument? On the top of the Washington Monument, the very peak of it, I think it's made of platinum, I'm not sure about that, but facing to the east, the, the, the sun would rise. And the Washington Monument, by law, is the largest building or the largest, uh, the tallest object or building, how would you say that? Not, well, not just monument, but the tallest thing that can be built in Washington. There's nothing that's supposed to be any taller than it. And, and the very peak of it, it says to God be the glory. And that's the first thing that as the sun rises in the east, the hits on Washington. But yet, if you go to the Washington Monument, there is a model of that, or a, um, a model of that peak that's inside the Washington Monument that's uh, there in a little viewing place. But they have that turned around backwards to where you can't see it. You don't see it. I think it's written in Latin. I'm not sure about that. But nonetheless, they kind of, and that's just the mindset that they have in Washington a lot of times. They, they don't want to bring glory to God. They want to stamp out religion in especially in Christianity as much as they can. So there's a large antichrist element in the world today. Well, once again, it's amazing how Hamas in their charter can say something like uh, part of their charter is on the destruction of Israel, but yet they want uh, there's a cartoon I saw. I won't say who who sent it. I think somebody in here sent it, but it was um had a, the leader of a mosque sitting there with Kerry um, um, and um, uh, Netanyahu, and it said that we a uh, death to all Jews. And Kerry uh, looked at Netanyahu and said, "Can't you just meet them halfway?" Anyway, but I mean that's the mindset and that's the attitude that people have. They 
they want to destroy Israel. And like, like Kim says, and uh, Kim said, I think a lot of it is that Antichrist spirit. Very much so. You know, uh, you know, last week, one of the things that we saw, and we're going to see again this week, uh, is the, the lack of leadership in the nations, uh, specifically with Israel. Last week, as we looked in, I think it was chapter 10, it talked about the judgment or the casting out of these leaders and uh, the people who had betrayed Israel because of their lack of assertiveness. And I think the same thing is true today, a lack of men and women who are willing to stand up for truth and say, you know what, this is the way it is, like it or not. You know, it's, uh, we live in a time and age to where it's better to be popular than it is to be right. Now, if you go back in, in American history, back to Roosevelt, uh, it's often said about Roosevelt that he would not have been elected or re-elected uh, after, after he had polio because of his, uh, well, being crippled because of, he was in a wheelchair. That if the American people, by and large, had known that, that he had not been re-elected. But people didn't know that. This was at an age before television was out there in their face every day like it is today. But today, our leaders have to be charismatic. And sometimes it seems like that's the more important thing, to be charismatic and liked rather than being right and on the side of God. We continue reading in chapter 12. One of the things that we see in verse 2 is it's uh, talking about the cup. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all people, all the people round about, when they shall be in siege against, uh, both against Judah and in Jerusalem. You know, the, the picture of a cup, is often used as a picture of judgment. We see that uh, judgment comes in and it's manifested in that way. And I wrote uh, some down, Psalm 7, uh, 75, 8, Isaiah 51, 17. I put all those in your outline, didn't I? It's all those there. So you, you can look at those and all those have a picture of a cup being used to bring the judgment of God. But what's the most uh, famous picture of judgment in the form of a cup? Exactly, I got it wrote down in Matthew 26 and 39. You know, Jesus is speaking to the Father. It says, oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass before me. Uh, you know, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou. And, and the cup is the judgment. Now, we won't get into what he was saying there. It's not saying, let me out of this, but he's saying, let's get it done. But it's still talking about the judgment of God being poured upon Jesus Christ. And he refers to it as a cup. So we see here that this judgment is getting ready to come on all these nations through Israel. And God is going to come and he's going to start to defend Israel and defeat the enemy as we continue seeing through this. And the Lord is going to appear in much the same manner that he promised in Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 9 through 12. Remember as the disciples were standing there and Jesus ascended into the heaven, that the men in white appeared to him and says, You men of Galilee, why stand ye here gazing into the heavens? Know ye not that this same Jesus will come in like manner? And of course, now we see where Jesus is going to come back. In uh, chapter 14, uh, we see that he steps in verse 3 through 7, that he steps down on the Mount of Olives. And this is when the mount will literally split open. And because of this, they... Uh, we'll talk about it as we get to the end of chapter 14. They think, and a lot of uh, commentators that I've read, thinks that the actual physical landscape, type, uh, typography, is that right? Typog 
landscape of Israel will be actually changed to where it will all be more of a plain instead of any large mountains on it. And it's going to make it uh, profitable for agriculture. And as we see the rivers that are coming from the throne of God, that they will flow both uh, every direction out of that and, you know, feeding the water, feeding the, the city. But God is going to come and he's going to appear. And when he comes, he's coming with his saints. And this is, uh, how long is the the second coming of Jesus Christ being preached. Anyone? I've often said that there's nothing in the New Testament that is not spoken of in the Old Testament, including the second coming of Jesus Christ. You know, we don't have new doctrine that's all of a sudden been invented for the New Testament. Whenever we see something in the New Testament, it was spoken spoken about in the Old Testament. It was prophesied about or told about, you know, including the second coming. Now, uh, the book of Jude in verse 15, 14 and 15 tells us that Enoch, uh, how was it, the seventh from Adam prophesied, well, it says also Enoch, the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord come with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all. And it goes on, but yet this has been prophesied since the very beginning. I mean, we find Enoch in the very beginning of Genesis, you know, seventh from Adam, and they were already talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So it's not a new concept. It's something that's been around since the very beginning of time. Uh, even before his first coming, so it's uh, kind of an interesting thing there. As we uh, continue on in verse nine, uh, 4 through 9, and then in chapter 14, 12 through 15, uh, we see that the Lord is going to defeat the enemy. It says in verse 8 of chapter 12, In that day the Lord shall defend. Once again, notice how this always comes back to whose responsibility is it that brings, power, that brings the judgment, that brings the victory, that's going to bring the defense. And it falls upon the Lord. It's not Israel's might, it's not their strength or stamina, but the power of God that's going to work through them in order to bring these victories. And God is the one that's going to do it. It's interesting as we go on and read uh, some of the things that he says is going to happen here. And I love to kind of just think about what does it mean with prophecy and how uh, anybody like that just kind of, how, but how many of us would like to watch or have watched shows of Nostradamus or prophecies of the end time on A&E or the History Channel or some of those different things? You know, because sometimes it's interesting when you read that or you look at those and you kind of try to figure out what they were saying. How does that apply to modern technology? Uh, we're not exactly riding around on horses anymore, but yet... The writers of this, they didn't know what a car was. They didn't know what a tank was. They didn't know what a helicopter was. They had to write from the realm of what they knew, trying to reveal something that they didn't fully understand. So a lot of times I believe they use these symbols, these metaphors, or tried to explain it the best they could. But as we read through here, it talks about the horses, how the horses will, will become panicked, the uh, people will become blind or become like mad people. The riders will over, be overtaken with madness and fight one another. One of the places in uh, verse 4, I think it is, in chapter 12, it talks about the horses being blind. And as I read through that, I just wonder, is it talking about GPS? You know, the vehicles, the, the, what we travel on anymore is largely supported by GPS and some kind of satellite tracking thing. And if something were to go wrong there, wouldn't we be essentially blind? 
I'm not trying to say that's what it is, but it's interesting for me to think of. But nonetheless, this is what the prophet is is talking about. It's talking about making the people as madmen, making them as blind, that they are no longer able to defend themselves, and God is able to come in and defeat them. And even the weakest of warriors, the weakest of the Israelites during this time, according to the scripture, are going to be as mighty as David in battle, that they're going to be able to, to go out and God is going to be with them and God is going to be using them in order to bring this victory. But once again, victory here is not the only uh, object. It's not the only objective that they have, but it's about the issues of the rebellion of the people of God. Not, Not just to bring victory, but to bring Israel back to a place of repentance, to bring them back to a right relationship with God, to bring them back to the place to where they need to be. Verse 10, it tells us that grace comes back to the house of David. The eyes will be open. They will see that it was Jesus Christ. Uh, I mean, as you go on, uh, and uh, they'll look upon him whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his own son, and shall be embittered uh, for him as one is in bitterness for his firstborn. You know, so when that happens and their eyes are opened to Messiah, to, to the Jesus Christ whom they have rejected, it's going to be a time of bitterness. It's going to be a time of mourning for them. It's going to be a time of weeping and sorrow. And like I said uh, in the introduction, a large part of it, I think, is going to be you would have to think back upon the people who have rejected and the people who have died lost because they simply wouldn't look at the brass serpent, you know, the picture that I'm painting there. But we see this throughout. And so the repentance of Israel is one of the things that God desires to get through all this. And all this is leading to that. So it's not just a matter of bringing victory to Israel, but also bringing repentance to the people of Israel. Uh, I won't go over there. Kind of like I said about, it's amazing to me how you could read this. And this is pretty close to what the Hebrew Bible would say. If you were a Jewish person today and you were reading it, I mean, this would be fairly accurate for you. It, w- it wouldn't, of course, have some of the, uh, the um, high priest writings and some of the different, the Talmud and some of the other books that they would read. But if you read this, how would you read through this and not see a picture of Jesus Christ in that? And I, it, just, it just blows my mind to think about that. So not only will the nation repent but also the nation will be cleansed there's a sanctification process that's going to take place as we read through chapter 13 Uh, the fountains open up to the house of david the purpose for cleaning themselves it goes on to tell us that the idols will be cut out that they're no longer going to be idol worshipers so those names those small g gods will be cut out from among the land the false prophets are going to be run out of the nation that they're no longer going to be there And, and who are the false prophets of israel well Some of them are the gods of the Canaanites, the Philistines, or other uh, small g gods. So we have a lot of those that would prophesy. But what about prophets that would call themselves Jewish people that's prophesying that Jesus is not the Messiah? Are they false prophets? Well, absolutely. As a fact, if you go down in chapter 13, it talks about the Jewish people, how even mothers and fathers, when their children would come up to them and prophesy and say, this is not it, that they would cast them out and run them through. So false prophets is not only pagan gods, but also the pagan religion of Judaism that rejects Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 
I, I, I want to set that away because there is a true Judaism that accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and that's the ultimate goal of Judaism. That's the ultimate thing that uh, God desired of the Old Testament to lead people to the knowledge of Jesus as Lord and Savior. So if they've accepted him, they've completed that, that's done his purpose. But if you accept the Old Testament but reject Jesus Christ, who else have you rejected? God the Father. The Word of God tells us if we rejected the Son, we've rejected the Father. So uh, the nation of Israel that, that rejects Jesus as Messiah is also part of those false religions. He goes on to tell us that the nation is going to be refined as people are refined or as metal is refined through fire. I love the idea of a silversmith. How many like, um, what is his name? Ray Underhill. Is it Underhill? Roy Underhill. The Woodwright Shop. Anybody ever see him? on? I love that guy. That just tickles me to death to watch him. But if you ever watch him when he's in there with other other craftsmen, and there's one blacksmith that comes on the show from time to time, and he'll get those, that piece of steel just smoking red hot. And uh, Roy, he has to put his finger right in there and point out, and you just know he's going to get burnt uh, just at any moment in time. He always seems to keep fairly safe. But a, a silversmith or a goldsmith, not only would they get it red hot, they would melt it down to the point to where they could scrape the dross or the impurities off of the top of it. They could filter it off to where what they had at the end was pure gold. You know, most of the metals that we have today are not pure. Most of our gold rings that we have or silver, uh, they're combined with another, uh, another metal or another uh, element of some sort in order to make it harder, make it a little bit more durable. You know, if we had 24 karat gold rings on, uh, they would bend it up real easy and uh, break real easy. So we tend to put nickel in there. We'll put copper or something else, depending on if we have white gold or uh, you know yellow gold or whatever, in order to make it hard. But yet, when you talk about the purest of elements, you're taking and heating it to a point to where you can remove all that other dross. And this is the picture that God is painting with the nation of Israel through this sanctification process that all that other stuff is going to be taken out of them. So all the false religion, all the false gods, all the, uh, the well, unrighteousness that they've committed or that they have in mind is going to be taken away. And God is going to uh, rule in them as a people, and he's going to lead them into righteousness, which really is what we should be doing as Christians today, right? If we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that his job is to lead us into all righteousness, that we should be living that. We shouldn't need that process at that time. But yet we know that it's going to happen because we are flesh and we make mistakes. But that process is going to take place through the chap through chapter 13. So let's go into chapter... Are, any questions or comments on this so far? Yeah, on that 17, 18, and 19 of the last chapter, is this talking about people that don't keep the sacrifices and the Feast of the Tabernacles, is those people lost like people are today? No, when we get there, actually, that's talking about the millennial kingdom, I believe. And there's going to be a thousand-year reign that Christ is going to set up rule on the earth. And he's going to reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And during that time, nations will have to come to him, and they will pay honor to, king, or to him as king and God. And there's going to still be people, amazingly enough, at that time that are going to refuse to bring uh, him the glory. And those people... When, he, when they don't do that during that reign, he's going to withhold the reign from those nations. Uh, in fact, if you read through that, he mentions Egypt 
specifically, I think, two times there. I'm not exactly sure why that is. But yet, when a nation rejects him uh, and they don't bring their, or they don't send their delegation to him, then as sovereign, he will withhold the blessings from those places on the earth. So if, if there still is an America at that time, I'm not sure there will be, but if there's an America at that time, America will have a delegation that will go to Israel in order to pay homage to him as king. And when the nations do that, then God will allow the blessings to fall upon those. But the nations who refuse to do that, then they'll be held back from the reign. But that's not talking about salvation. It's talking about that millennial kingdom reign. Any other questions or comments? What if he's a... Let's just say, I'm a believer in Christ, but my country wants to go fight Israel, you know, and take them down. What would happen if I didn't stand for it and tell them I wasn't? You know what I'm saying? Well, the... I'm sure there's people, like, people head up that do believe in Christ and don't agree with the decisions people are making towards Israel. The friend of my enemy is my enemy. You know, and I think that's going to... I mean, that sounds harsh, but I think that's going to be the mindset of the world during that time. Now... Me and Brother David, we both agree on this. We, we, we tend to differ on when the rapture is going to take place, but we both believe the rapture is going to take place. And we believe during that last and that great tribulation period that the Christian people will be taken out of here. But even with the Christian people out of here, there's going to be people that get saved uh, after that period of time. I think you agree with that, don't you, Brother David? Now, those people who get saved after that time, the rapture's already taken place and they've missed it. So they will have to make a stand. Are they going to stand with God, or are they going to stand with the world? And if they stand with the world, they will suffer just like the world. But if they stand with God, then they're going to receive the punishment of the world just like if they were Israel. Does that make sense? So that they're going to suffer the punishment just like they would if they were Israel. So if you refuse to take the mark of the if you if you were here during that time, and you refuse to take the mark of the beast, you refuse to worship him as God, and you stood against him, he would kill you as quick as, he, as they would Israel. You will be considered his enemy. What about for the people right now, though, like um, the people in Gaza? What if there's, well, obviously they'd be killed if they believed in Christ. You know? At that time, the Christians will be taken out. Uh, the rapture will take place before those events start to happen. Before, like, the Ezekiel War 38? Not, not before Ezekiel 38 and 39. If you understand that and believe that in the same way that uh, Brother Daniel believes it, and uh, to the best of my understanding, that's, I, I agree with Brother Daniel on that. Uh, but that war will actually take place before all that tribulation. So, and, and at that point in time, it will be no different than a war taking place today, that people will die, fight and die in a war, and uh, there will be casualties, uh, both good and bad. But after that tribulation period, uh, people who stand on the side of God will, some will make it to the end. But most will be, uh, in my opinion, most will be killed off before the uh, Battle of Armageddon ever takes place. Uh, I think that we're getting closer and closer to that time because I've just noticed here recently that it seems like people all over the world are now being forced to take a side for against Israel. Well, you have that, and then you also have a lot of persecution in other nations. I mean, some of the things that we, we live in the age of technology and the age of information, but there's still a lot of technology and information that's being hid from the public eye right now. For instance, uh, how many of us know about the persecution with the Jewish people 
uh, going on in France right now. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of persecution taking place in Paris. They're, they're wanting to, uh, in, in part of that area, they're wanting to register Jewish people again. Uh, seems kind of foolish. I mean, it's not been that long ago since we went through that avenue. But a, a lot of very anti-Semitic uh, type of um, uh, philosophies on that. So, I mean, yeah, I agree with you. We're, I, I really think that we're right there on the threshold of it. I, I just don't think that we've got that much longer before he comes back. Also, right here in America, in Chicago, there was a big um, rally and parade and everything against Israel. And there's a lot of it. Amen. Just uh, a lot of it all over here, uh, all over the world. I mean, even to the point of where our government will, as somebody said there a moment ago, will stand on the side of Hamas and question Israel's sovereignty and, and their, their right to dispute their own borders. And yet we will stand on the side of a known terrorist organization. It just doesn't make sense. But so, and right there we are. I mean, it's just like <clears throat> them are condemning Gaza for, or Israel for killing so many civilians, but they don't hang on much of that, uh, that Hamas is using civilians to hide their weapons or use them as human shields. No, and it's, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll tell on the news that Israelis fired, you know, 12 missiles into Hamas, 12 guided missiles, and it hit a school or it hit a hospital or whatever, but yet they don't tell about the 120 missiles that were shot from Gaza into Israel that have no guided system, that just fall at random wherever. Uh, you know, they will report on uh, 12 casualties from uh, the Islamic people, but they won't report on... The, uh, the catastrophe that's happening with Israel. And, you know, it's just a very doubled standard. And once again, it's that same objection, it's that same hard line against Israel uh, philosophy and anti-Christ spirit that's still there. Anti-Christ is going to make a peace treaty with Israel. What time is that? I don't know. Not chapter of Daniel or 27th quarters, they'll come back to him. I, I think that the peace treaty and what you're, what you're getting at there. I think that once that peace treaty is signed, you, you just stop me if I'm going off course on this. Now, I, I, like I said, and I, I don't make any excuse for this. Prophecy is not my forte. That's why I had Brother Daniel to come up on some of this. But my understanding is the, pro, the peace treaty with Israel will be signed at the very beginning of that seven-year tribulation period. Halfway through when the Antichrist desecrates the temple is the, the mark of... Um, well, of the halfway point, but I believe that there will be a peace treaty, a peace treaty signed before that. Now, is that how you believe, or do you believe different than that? I don't know. <laughs> but we do know the signs of the season. The time period. Yeah. You would set it next week or that time. I'm just talking about. Yeah. Was the peace treaty going to be at the beginning or when? Yeah, we we know the signs of what's going to happen. And we know some of the order of what's going to happen, but at the same time, you know, we don't know when that's going to happen. You know, we can't say that's going to happen in 2016 or 2018. But we come at the beginning, there's going to be a peace treaty signed at that time. Yes. If the Lord comes in the middle, there's still going to be a peace treaty signed at the beginning of the tribulation period. And, well, no matter how it goes, there is, because of prophecy, there is going to be a peace treaty, peace, peace treaty signed. Yeah.
Can we finish this real quick? Y'all want to finish or y'all want to just come back next week on it? I tell you.